I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. As obsessions go, I didn't get this one at first. Graham MacDonald wasn't even born when some of us were discovering this amazing new rock opera in 1971. It was on vinyl, of course, a two-record set with a special souvenir booklet. I got it for Christmas that year, and it was in constant rotation at my house. Jesus Christ Superstar. Graham discovered the album years later in his dad's collection of classic vinyl, and it wasn't long before he was obsessed. And that, dear listener, is why you're about to hear CBC Radio's Graham McDonald in a conversation with Ted Neely, the man who's been playing Jesus for more than 50 years. Every time we screen this film, those people think that's who I am. That's how they treat me. Here was this lady who was so obviously pregnant, and she just reached up and said, Mr. Neely, I love the show. I love everything about this show. Could I ask you a question, please? And I said, of course. She said, may I take your hand and put it on my tummy so my baby can feel the experience? And, I, you know, I almost fainted. And despite decades of performances, Ted Neely says the magic never wore off. The people who want to see the spiritual element that's in it, see it. And I, being able to perform every night, I I swear, sometimes I don't feel my feet even touch the floor. And I've done it thousands upon thousands of times. There is a spiritual connection with every person in those audiences. It's just, I'm the luckiest man alive to be able to be a part of this still. The 50th anniversary of Jesus Christ Superstar on film with Ted Neely coming up. Later this hour. I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. How much wisdom and bittersweet beauty can you even jam into 11 words? It's another story about the power of music and the place where fandom becomes a religious experience. You'll meet a scholar of religion, a psychologist, and, of course, a few fans, as we ask the question, what would Taylor Swift do? On today's episode, two musical experiences separated by half a century, each with a kind of power and a hold on fans that verges on the spiritual. Maybe the writer Hans Christian Andersen said it best, where words fail, music speaks. So Hans Christian Andersen would have been a Swifty? This is Tapestry. I'm Mary Hines. Graham McDonald loves musicals, but one has a special place in his heart. The Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice production, Jesus Christ Superstar. Now, on the 50th anniversary of the film's release, Graham speaks to Ted Neely about what it's been like to spend a lifetime as Jesus when we get ready to do the show where people are coming into the theater and we can hear the people and the closer it gets to 
curtain time, it's louder and louder and louder. And then you'll hear, ladies and gentlemen, if you will take your seats, the show will begin in five minutes. Okay, and then, the minute that boy says that, the lights start to go down to darkness. And it gets softer and quieter, and then it's absolute silence. The minute the people hear the guitar go, you hear them cheer, you feel a rush of positive energy that comes upon the stage. That it gives us, it, if we were half asleep, we would be so interested because the, you can hear the people. And right now it's making cold chills go up and down my back because I remember how it feels. And that happens through every performance. This year marked a very special anniversary. 50 years ago, in the summer of 1973, the film Jesus Christ Superstar was released. Ever since I first dug out my dad's old LP of the soundtrack, I have been obsessed with this musical. And there are so many reasons I keep coming back to it. The incredible bass playing in What's the Buzz. The high note in Gethsemane. But there's one thing about Jesus Christ Superstar that I have been thinking about for years. And that's the sheer number of times the film star Ted Neely has played the role of Jesus Christ. It's estimated that over the last 50 years, he's performed the role over 5,500 times. I was curious about the effect that this would have on an actor. So I called up Ted to reflect on 50 years of playing Jesus. Hello, my name is Ted Neely. Uh, I was in this wonderful film, Jesus Christ Superstar, and I'm so honored that you folks are interested in talking to me about what's going on. Whereabouts did you grow up? In Texas. I grew up in a town, literally the whole population was under 2,000 people. Everybody knew everybody by their first name, you know, and so it was a sweet, wonderful experience. Did you have a religious upbringing? Oh, yeah. You couldn't live in that town and not be a part of a religion because, uh, you know, church was really the only kind of entertainment we had. And uh, I was singing in the church choir when I was could hardly walk. It was beautiful. It wasn't anything that was forced upon us. It was just we all wanted to go because we had fun. It was like as if we were having a party every Sunday, you know, two times on the same day. Oh, that was great, you know. <laughs> anyway, so the whole thing was that, that it was just part of my life. And when I first said that in an interview quite a long time ago, the person said, well, does, do you think you were doing research then for this particular character? <laughs> I went, oh, that's a good idea. You know? <laughs> and thank goodness I had that opportunity because I can't tell you how much it helped me once we started doing Superstar, which was in 1971 on Broadway. Before we go any further, we should talk about how Jesus Christ Superstar came to be. Hot off the success of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber's first biblically inspired musical, the pair set out to turn the story of Jesus' final days into a rock opera, but they initially had some trouble finding financial backing. So as a proof of concept, the duo made an album. The cast included Deep Purple's Ian Gillen as Jesus. and 
Murray Head as Judas. Christ, I know you can heal me, but I only did what you wanted me to. The album was released in October of 1970, and it was a massive hit. It topped Billboard's year-end list in 1971, finishing just ahead of, oddly enough, Carol King's Tapestry. But what made this gospel rock opera subversive wasn't just its musical form. It was also its theology. Tim Rice points to the Bob Dylan song With God on Our Side as a major inspiration for the musical, and specifically this verse. That Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss But I can't think for you You'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. And that question is at the heart of Jesus Christ Superstar. And for me is one of the reasons it's so interesting. As an audience, we're asked to sympathize with Judas. The story is mostly shown through his eyes, and we even hear angelic voices praising Judas when he agrees to betray Jesus. A sympathetic view of Judas wasn't the show's only theological thorn. People also took issue with how Jesus was portrayed. Throughout the musical, we see a Jesus who questions his role as a savior. He has doubts, fear, and anger. And this was the role Ted was about to take on. When I was asked to come and audition, I had worked with that same director, the guy that did the Broadway show with, in four other shows. And he just said, that I'm doing a show and blah, 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 come and audition. I said, what is it? And he said, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. He said, just listen to the album and pick whatever character you're interested in because the producers need to hear you sing. So I listened to the album and guess which character I picked. I've, did you pick Judas? I feel like I've heard this book. No, I picked Mary Magdalene. Oh, oh, that makes sense. I, no, yeah, Judas, definitely. I I didn't have any interest in becoming, pretending to be Jesus because everybody in the world knows Jesus. Nobody really knows Judas. So I thought, oh, I can create a character. So I went to, to New York and I sang Heaven on Their Minds, which is the, you know, the number opening song that Judas sings. And my, the director was sitting between the two producers he jumped out of his chair and ran up on the stage. I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I got the part. This is great. He ran over and gave me a big hug. And he said, Ted, that was great. But could you do me a favor? I said, sure. He said, come back tomorrow and sing the other guy. He just said the other guy. So I went back to the hotel, listened, listened, and listened. And I chose Gethsemane. And I've been singing Gethsemane ever since. Wow. <laughs> and so like, when you first heard the record, what was going through your mind? Like, What, what were you feeling? Oh, I was loving every second of it. I, you know, I had heard songs. I hadn't had listened to the album, but when I did sit down and listen to the album, I could not believe what a beautiful story it was. And there was no dialogue. You know, the whole story was based upon the lyrics of each one of the songs. Tim Rice wrote such incredible lyrics to those songs. It was just phenomenal to hear a story through songs people were singing. And again, that was because of my religious background. I picked up elements of the Bible in every song that was in the show. 
At that point, did you have a conception of what impact this was about to have on your life? No, no, not at all. Because again, it was, shall we say, an extension of the biblical services that I heard every Sunday when I was a child. So it was like, oh gosh, that's that's like I'm home. And I wasn't thinking at all about what actually happened. And this was, I was auditioning for the Broadway show. Then the next thing you know, uh, it, Superstar was so successful on Broadway that they decided to put together a national tour and they had Carl Anderson to play Judas and me to sing Jesus. And we started out at the Universal Amphitheater in Hollywood and we were supposed to be on tour for approximately five months. Well, that tour went on for two and a half years, but Carl and I were pulled out of the show to audition for the film. And we were at Universal rehearsing in the sound stages there. And we figured, well, oh, on lunch break tomorrow, we'll go next door and sing a couple songs and cut back after lunch and go. But they flew us all the way to London for the screen test. We couldn't believe they did that. Anyway, we did the screen test in London. He sang Heaven on Their Minds. I sang Gethsemane. Then the director, Norman Jewison, said, do you guys know that scene in The Last Supper where Jesus and Judas just go face to face? One of my 12 chosen will leave to betray me. Cut out the dramatics. You know very well who. Why don't you go? We said, sure, because, you know, we'd done it a hundred times at least. And he said, well, could you do that? So we did it. And uh, he ran up and hugged us and said, Thank you so much. Get back out there in California and do your work. And we both thought that meant you're not right for the show. <laughs> Get out of here, you know. <laughs> well, two nights before we opened the show at Universal Amphitheater, I got a call, and it was Norman Jewison. And he said, I loved what you and Carl did in your audition, and I want you both to be in my film. And I just had a heart attack. I, I couldn't, I'd never been in a film. I had no really theatrical training. It's just being in the right place at the right time and things happened, you know. Next thing you know, we're in Israel. Norman Jewison could have shot the film in any desert anywhere, but he wanted to take all of us to Israel so we could feel the essence of the reality that we were pretending to be. And it was brilliant that he made that decision. I wish you could have been there. No matter where we walked, it was like we were walking in somebody's very special footsteps. In fact, everything you see in the film was authentically there for 2,000 years, except for the moat on which we did the King Herod song. You're the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. That's all you need. They built that and set it on the Dead Sea, and that's the, but everything else in the film was authentic. And the biggest problem we had with that was when they found the Garden of Gethsemane. All those beautiful trees were there, but there was nothing but sand and rocks on the ground. So he had to send a crew members over to plant all that beautiful grass. And he didn't know that that particular location was almost like a central area for the shepherds and their sheep going either way, north, south, east, west, passed through that, you see. And they went, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? The sheep are going to eat the grass. So he had to make a deal with all the shepherds. Please, don't let your sheep eat this grass until we're finished. And when we're finished, they can have a holiday celebration for green or whatever you want to call it. Anyway, so 
that's what you see at the end of the confrontation with Jesus and Judas when Judas runs away and all those sheep are there. They were there. I swear they had reservations. They already bought tickets. They were going to gobble up all that grass. <laughs> but everything that we experienced, there was this atmosphere of what I felt in my church when I was a child, you know. We were actually walking where I was taught in my childhood about all this that happened. We were actually in that same spot, you see, and uh, unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. It's, there's so many elements that happened that seemed like an accident or a, a gift, one of the two, all the way through the shooting of that film. And mm -hmm. I'll never forget it if I live to be another 2,000 years old. One of those accidents comes at the end of the film. The final shot is of the cross where Jesus was crucified, silhouetted by the setting sun. And in the bottom left, you can see something slightly moving. In the documentary Superstars, about the making of the film, the film's director, Norman Jewison, explains. So there was a cross, and there was a lot of sky, and a lot of desert, and I had made every effort to make sure that nobody entered this huge background. And we were filming, and all of a sudden, I saw a shepherd in the distance, very, very faint. And then I heard someone say, there's somebody in the shot, we'll have to cut. And I said, no, don't cut. We don't know who he is. And he doesn't know we're here. But why don't we leave him alone? And then I watched him, and he went across, and then he disappeared. That is the most mystical moment in this film. To this day, I don't know where he came from, I don't know who he was, why he appeared when everything was blocked. I had watched this movie dozens of times, and I had never actually noticed that. Well, you know, that, that that wasn't planned, and we didn't even see it until we were looking at the takes, you know, a uh, couple of days later, because you could see how far the cameras were away from that cross, you know, and at the sunset, and then all of a sudden something's moving down there from left to right, and you go, what? what? Well, it was the big director in the sky that made that happen, literally, because Norman didn't see it. And he, he showed it to us. He said, kids, I want you guys to see a miracle. You know, he put it up on the screen. And we couldn't believe it. And there was the shepherd with his sheep, you know, walking there, cross the crosses up. Just a miracle thing to happen. Well, I can tell you this, talking about miracles. Uh, while we were there shooting this, uh, I met the lovely lady who became my wife. She was a dancer in the movie. She grew up in the National Ballet of Canada, dancing with Baryshnikov and Nureyev. And there were several people in that film that were in the National Ballet of Canada. It was Mr. Jewison is from Canada, and the, uh, the choreographer who did all of that was from Canada, and they brought some of the dancers that they worked with, you know? So if you can just think, here we are in the Negev Desert, beside the Dead Sea, and here's this ballerina, and here I am, a screaming rock and roll drummer from Texas. What are the chances our paths would ever have crossed had we not been cast in that film? So it changed my life for the better in every possible way, 
It gave me my wife. It gave me a life. It gave me a career. And here I am 50 years later talking to you about this, the movie that we're discussing. I'm, I'm amazed. So when I see it, and believe me, I've seen it so many times because we've been doing screenings for quite a few years, you know, and I have never once seen it without being amazed by some new moment that you can see. You go, oh, oh, oh yeah. It, I, I just wish everyone could experience what I and we, everyone in that film experienced in Israel with this film. This is the, the major miracle that happened in terms of production. Norman Jewison had done many, many films, as you well know, with major studios. And when he was putting it all together, he contacted each one of those studios to see if they'd be interested in releasing it. And he said, every one of them, Ted said to me, Norman, nobody wants to see a rock opera, especially if it has something to do with religion. He said, I'm going to prove you wrong, and he certainly did. So when we finished the film, and he had heard about all the stuff that was going on in New York when we did it, we were protested every single night, and no, no violence, but they were protesting, and we were doing that horrible anti-religious rock and roll thing, and Jesus is singing, and you go. Anyway, so he decided he needed somebody to endorse it. So guess who he contacted to see if he could help? He contacted Pope Paul VI, and because he was Norman Jewison, Pope Paul responded, and he said, I would like to come over and show you my film. I, I see what you think. So he goes over, the two of them sit there and watch the film together in the Vatican, and he said, Ted, he never took his eyes off the screen throughout the entire film. And I thought, oh my goodness, he's hating it. He said, minute it stopped, he took a deep breath and the Pope said, Mr. Jewison, I love your film. I think this film has the possibility of bringing more people to spirituality and faith. You have my absolute support. The minute that was announced, it changed everything because the Catholic faith endorsed it. I wanted to ask you about some of the controversy when it first came out. For listeners who might not know, the portrayal of Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar, it, it's a pretty vulnerable one. You know, the film focuses a lot on Jesus's doubt and fear. You know, you really feel it in songs like Gethsemane. I'm not as sure as when we started. And you kind of feel how overwhelmed Jesus is at, you know, the end of the temple. And at the time, there were some Christians who felt that this went too far. And as far as potentially denying some of the divinity of Christ, you know, portraying him yes. a, a little bit more human. And I'm curious, as someone of faith, how did that land with you at the time? I got to tell you, it was um, very strange. And I can, the best example I can give you is when we were uh, at the theater there in New York City, because we walked from the hotel where we were all staying, and it was only three blocks away. But as we get closer and closer to the theater, we see all of those people out there in the street carrying posters and stuff, you know. And it, you go, God, what's going on there? If you didn't know what it was, you know. And as we get up there, and then we have to go in the back 
stage entrance, they tried to stop us from going into the theater. And there was never any real physical violence in our, our production company said, no matter what they may say to you, don't say anything because they might punch you right in the face. So we were silent. Well, you know, we're squeezing our way through trying to get to the backstage door. And if I was able to get eye contact with somebody, I would say, pardon me, sir or ma'am, uh, may I ask a question? Yeah, what is it? Uh, I'd say, well, uh, have you seen our show? No, we're not going to go into that den of iniquity. Never. It's sacrilegious. It's just horrible. I said, well, have you seen the show? No, 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 no. I said, well, if you haven't seen the show, what is it you don't like? We hear everything. People tell us on the streets, it's just terrible. It's just, I said, well, could you please do me a favor? Could you come in tonight as my guest, watch the show, wait for me in the lobby. I'll come out after the show and you can tell me what it is you don't like. Maybe we could change that for the better. And their, their attitude would change. And they'd say, you would do this? And I said, yes, we are here to entertain you. And we want to make you happy and not make you angry. So the ones who were brave enough to step across that threshold into that den of iniquity and watch the show and wait for me in the lobby, I would go out. And the minute I opened the door, they would go, we love your show. It's incredible. We're going to come back and bring our families. And, you know, that's what happened. So what happened from that day one was the people who protested were helping to promote it because the TV companies were all there wondering what was going on in New York City, see? So the essence of that, to me, is the proof that there are people everywhere who feel it is maybe not as a spiritual example. Yet, when they do get to see it, 90% of them will go, this is beautiful, and they'll sing the songs. So I was completely affected because I was so proud to be in something that was all about spirituality. And I knew exactly what the story was with the lyrics of the songs. And I was feeling so good that we could spread spirituality to people through music and celebration. And some of them didn't know. The people who want to see the spiritual element that's in it, see it. And I being able to perform every night, I, I swear, sometimes I don't feel my feet even touch the floor. And I've done it thousands upon thousands of times. And the songs, the audiences, the, there is a spiritual connection with every person in those audiences. It's just, I'm so happy that you're talking about the spirituality of the essence, you see. It's, I, I'm the luckiest man alive to be able to be a part of this still. On the topic of, of how this has impacted your life, you've mentioned the career, family, but I'm curious on kind of an internal level. Has playing Jesus so many times affected how you act on a day-to-day -day level? Like, do you find you've drifted more towards more Christ-like attitude? Like, you know? Well, quite honestly, um, even if I didn't have that, which I definitely do, and I'm honored that I do and had the experience to go through that and, and, and achieve that, every time we screen this film, those people think that's who I am. That's how they treat me. In, uh, in the Superstars documentary, you tell a story about someone who came up to you to ask you to bless their child. Um, yes. Could you tell that story? That was at the Universal Amphitheater. 
the amphitheater, you know, we were outside. We weren't in a backstage area like we normally are. And the, the people, it, it, it's a 5,000-seat arena. And that particular night, uh, we were out there for quite some time. And suddenly, here was this lady who was so obviously pregnant. And she just reached up and said, Mr. Neely, I love the show. I love everything about this show. Could I ask you a question, please? And I said, of course. She said, may I take your hand and put it on my tummy so my baby can feel the experience? <laughs> and, I, you know, I almost fainted. <laughs> and she did, and I did, and we did. Okay, fade out. That was in 1972. And now in Italy, mm -hmm. was doing the same thing there. One night after the show, people in the lobby and... I'd been out there for a little over an hour after the show, and all of a sudden, this lady comes up and says, Mr. Neely, I, I, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I was at the Universal Amphitheater, and I came up and asked you to bless my child. I was pregnant. I went, oh, yes, I remember it specifically. And then she said, this is my daughter. That's the girl you inspired before she even was born. Can you imagine that? Like, How, I, how do you feel in that moment? I'm, I'm amazed. I, I go, I'm cry, cry all the time. I just get so emotionally touched by how these people are so impressed by Jesus Christ Superstar. And like those guys at the studios who all said, nobody wants to see a rock opera, especially if it's about religion. And you go, what? What's wrong with you? <laughs> it just, I get lifted up every time I get a chance to perform in this show again. I just... I'm so thankful that I have been able to be a part of Jesus Christ Superstar and be a celebrant 50 years later. Just right now, I have to grab a Kleenex because I'm tearing up. <laughs> I am so inspired, literally. And of course, now the irony is that this screaming rock and roll drummer from Texas is being asked to come to all kinds of spiritual meetings and speak to people and then inspire their lives. Ah. So I could not be more thankful. Thank you so much for your time. It was great to talk to you. Okay, Take good care. That was actor Ted Neely with CBC producer Graham McDonald. This is Tapestry, keeping you company and helping you make sense of the world. Maybe you're listening online at cbc.ca. You can also find us on the CBC Listen app, on Spotify, on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, and on CBC Radio 1. I'm Mary Hines. Do you remember the first concert you ever attended? The way the lights glowed, the warmth of the people around you, that buzz of anticipation. There is a beauty and even a kind of magic in being a fan. But what if your connection to the musician has more to do with your beliefs about yourself than any unrequited love for the star? Producer McKenna Hadley-Burke brings you a deeper look at one fandom in particular and the very human need that's being met when we revere big stars. Are you ready for it? Taylor Swift's fans are a powerful cultural force. 
may be as powerful as Taylor herself. Welcome to the Eras Tour. This has been the most extraordinary experience of my entire life. After the pop music star announced her Eras Tour in November 2022, Ticketmaster reported that Taylor Swift broke the record for most tickets sold for any artist in a single day. That record was broken by her loyal admirers, her champions, the Swifties. Yeah, I think I've always been kind of jealous that I didn't have that built-in community with people who cared about the exact same thing that I did passionately. And now I do. That's Mary Macon, one of the co-founders of T-Swift Dance Party Canada. I have loved Taylor Swift for as long as I can remember. (laughs) I was born in 1991, Uh, Taylor was, of course, famously born in 1989. So anytime she's written an album, it's come out a year or two later, which basically means that I'm going through whatever she was going through age-wise when she wrote her music. So Taylor has always been a part of my life. She sang about things that I felt like I was going through in high school, in undergraduate degree, becoming an adult, if I can say that now. And then even like moving into my 30s, I feel like she's gone through the same path that I have. And that's a big reason that I love her. You were in college working part time, waiting tables. The Swifty community might be enormous, but their connection to Taylor can feel personal, even intimate. Here's Francesca Grapuzzo. You know, obviously she has millions of fans that she doesn't know personally, but yet she's created this connection with her fans that everyone feels like you're part of this like incredible relationship with her. You always feel like you're seen and heard throughout her music or whenever she does interviews. So that's a huge part of the connection that I have with her is that it's always, you know, right there for me when I need it. Francesca says Taylor's music has taken on new meaning for her as she's entered her 20s. She's always going to be writing new music, even with her songs that have already been released. You know, I may not relate to it today, but I could relate to it in two years from now or 10 years from now. That's the magical thing about her songs is that, you know, they're always going to be there. A few years ago, Francesca found Taylor's music helping her through a particularly difficult time. When I was really struggling with who I was as a person, my sexuality, stuff like that, her music and uh, her, you know, as herself, really, really helped me because I thought, well, if she can be herself, not care what other people think, and still be happy, I can do that too. And it just helped make the process so much easier. Coming out is never easy. It's always hard all the time. So to have that outlet to just relax yourself and uh, step back for a second is super, super helpful. Big stars have always had intense fandoms. 
but why are we invested in people we'll likely never meet? Well, it might have something to do with how we view ourselves. Sometimes, just like, you know, a kid would have um, a poster of their favorite athlete on the wall, we feel inspired by the qualities that this person exhibits. And, and these qualities remind us that we have these potential qualities in ourselves. So, for example, somebody could look at Taylor Swift and see her immense creativity or the freedom that she expresses when she's on stage. And that part of themselves could be saying, oh, yes, I could do that. That's Maya Jikic, a personality psychologist and the executive director of the Self-Development Laboratory at the University of Toronto. Most of us as we go uh, along in our life, we feel very ourselves. You know, we think we know who we are. We are a person who has these qualities. People are very stuck on the idea that they have this personality that's very stable and this is kind of who I am. Without realizing that really most of the things around ourselves are moving so that we are in this process of always becoming. As we explore these different possible selves, fiction, uh, celebrities, artists, people who are in the public eye can provide the qualities of that we admire, that we are inspired by, and we are trying to develop in ourselves. And I will use them, I'll use the song, I'll use reading the book to remind myself to cultivate this quality because it is a potential inside of me that I feel is yearning for fulfillment. When we use either art or our parasocial relationships in, in this way, it can really be a positive thing. Francesca remembers a time when her admiration for Taylor Swift shaped the way she responded to an event in her own life. When I was in uh, college, where we were doing an online class, like having to do with human rights, and there was just like an open discussion going on, and a student answered conversation that we were having, and the answer just seemed just not right. I'm listening to it, and I think I'm like, do I raise my hand? Do I turn my mic on and say something? Because it's not sitting right with me. I just thought to myself, I'm like, okay, well, what would Taylor Swift do? She would say something. You know, she wouldn't just let that fly and let it go. And when I did it, I, it just felt like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. It just felt better, like I did something good. Maya says the capacity to join others in shared admiration, whether it's of a fictional character or a famous person, is an important part of why people become fans. If you're thinking about the human need that underlies both our desires to understand fictional characters well and this intense move towards understanding celebrities well or knowing information about them, it's likely to be just very basic need for connection with others and creation with others and understanding maybe what, what is possible for us. For Miri, Taylor's music was the key to finding and creating community. I've met so many people who are obsessed with Taylor Swift, love Taylor Swift, and we run these events where all of these different Swifties get together, sing at the top of their lungs, dance like nobody's watching, and just sort of feel a community that maybe they haven't felt elsewhere before. Like Swifties really have their own language and their own inside jokes and the things that they're particularly interested in. 
But that admiration can evolve into something greater. Sometimes fandom communities take on a religious quality. So in a very easy and somewhat superficial way, we can say that fandom does operate like religion. And indeed it does, but there's really more to it. And the fact that fans identify so intensely with celebrities or media personalities, similar to how religious adherents identify with someone like Jesus Christ, really helps to explain how fandom and religion can be seen to be so similar. That's Kathleen Riddell, an independent scholar in the field of religious studies. She looked at the crossover between fandom and religion for her PhD at the University of Waterloo. We're attracted to celebrities because we see part of ourselves in the celebrity. It is premised on identification. But when we look more closely, we can see that identification is really premised on the fact that fans and religious adherents are drawn to either the religious figure or the media personality, the celebrity, through the fact that they do religious work. Identification stems from the way we are socialized. It's a really a way of expanding our awareness to many different locations that allows us to see ourselves in different places in society. And this identification is what drives the adoration of the fan to the celebrity. Kathleen spoke to fans of two deceased celebrity musicians, John Lennon and Johnny Cash, to see how fandom evolves over time. She found that these fans had rituals and language that had a lot in common with religious worship. So fans who use religious metaphors in describing the celebrity or their fan practices is actually quite a common experience. And the reason I think that they do this is that religion is really the best analogous experience in order to articulate, one, how they feel about the celebrity, but two, about their experiences with the celebrity or other fans. I had a lot of fans engage in listening practices with the celebrity. So I had one fan, his name was Sam, and these these names of fans, they're all pseudonyms, but um, his name was Sam, and he would play Beatles music for three to four hours after he woke up with John Lennon each morning. In other examples, I had fans who were called by John Lennon or Johnny Cash to a religious service. So I had one fan, his name was Henry, and he had left the church because he had a business deal that went south with the Catholic Church. He was a business investor and he felt called by Johnny Cash through a dream in order to attend Catholic Church again. I had one fan, her name was Ruth. She called Breakfast with the Beatles, this radio station that aired the Church of the Beatles every Sunday, her church. So these are the types of religious language that fans use. They talk about, you know, how they adore and worship the celebrity. For Mary, Taylor's music reflects her own inner thoughts and the way she sees the world. But when she started running the dance parties, she saw that connection in a whole new light. I always try and describe to people what these parties feel like, because it is hard if you haven't been there to really understand the energy that's in those spaces. At our Rebel event in Toronto, which we had, I think it was 3,500 Swifties in that space, I looked out and everyone had been singing along to every word. 
dancing as if, you know, they were the main character in their story and no one was watching and they were just having the best time. But then the music slows and there's a part that Taylor Swift starts singing, uh, just between us, do you remember it all too well? And I was up on stage and I remember putting my hands up in the sort of iconic heart pose that Taylor Swift always does on her tour. And I just started waving that heart back and forth. And I looked out and 3,500 people, I kid you not, every single person in the entire room within 10 seconds had put up their own hands and were all just waving in time, eyes closed, singing the lyrics at the top of their lungs. She just has a way of telling her own story in such a raw way that I think people pick up on those feelings or those thoughts because they're inside us. There are thoughts too, and she's the one who's actually putting them on paper and singing them. Just between us, do you remember it all too Kathleen says it's fans who maintain a celebrity's star power and help it to endure over time. These relationships that fans have with celebrities, they're not passive, they're active relationships. And that this type of relationship must be maintained through the fans' continual investment in the celebrity. As for Mary and Francesca, they say they have no plan to step back from their commitment to Taylor Swift and the Swifties anytime soon. With or without new music or new tours, they'll shake it off because this is a commitment and they're ready for it. Once you become a fan, you're there for life. It's very hard to break that connection when you feel you know, so strongly about her music and her as a person, you feel like you're going to be there for as long as she's writing music, which, based on what she said, will happen for the rest of her life. So that's, you know, a lifelong uh, commitment that I am very excited to continue. I just feel like we have so much history, which sounds bizarre to say because I don't know this woman personally at all. But, but we do have this catalog of music that exists that I felt so deeply and I will always feel so deeply. So even if Taylor Swift completely veered into an era that in no way had anything to do with my life and I didn't relate to at all, maybe that specific era just isn't for me. But I think I'll always have the songs that have gotten me through tough moments or that I've, you know, danced wildly to in the bathroom at a bar with friends. I will never be able to erase those memories. And in that way, I, I don't really see Taylor Swift ever just disappearing from my life. She's in it to stay. Sorry, Taylor. <laughs> that was McKenna Hadley-Burke with the documentary, What Would Taylor Swift Do? Special thanks to tapestry producers Arman Igbali, Samir Chabra, and Theo Van Buzikam. That's it for us this week. This episode was produced by McKenna Hadley-Burke. Technical production by Laura Antonelli. The senior producer is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.